Welcome to Off Key, a Membrane Labs podcast about the music industry for the industry novice. I'm your host, Talia Seidman Wright. This season of Off Key will be taking a turn down a new path, moving on from the who question towards the how to. Our hope is that this season will act as a music industry 101, providing accessible information for industry newcomers like myself who are interested in building an understanding of how to earn money and achieve success as a creator in Canada's music industry. Join me as I learn about the ins and outs of the music industry from the perspective of two key players in the creation of music, the songwriter and the recording artist. Through research and conversations with music professionals, I'll explore how these creators make money and who and what they should be aware of as they build careers in the ever-evolving music business landscape. This week, we'll be turning back to the recording artist, looking at the various players on the recording artist's team. Just like the songwriter, getting an artist's music out there and into people's ears is crucial in order to make money from their work. And to make this happen, there is often a whole team of people working behind the scenes to develop, distribute, and promote an artist's work. In this episode, we'll learn about the people that make up the artist's team and the services they provide in building an artist as a business. We'll also look at the legal side of building a team and what one should be aware of when signing an agreement with various team players, such as managers or labels. To start, let's consider at what point in their career an artist would need to start assembling a team to support their growth as a business. An artist starting out is usually working independently, coordinating their own recording sessions, music releases, social media, and live shows. In the episode with Makuda and IMUR, we explored what this DIY process looks like, so check out that episode if you haven't already. I had the pleasure of speaking with Savannah Wellman from Tiny Kingdom in Vancouver, BC, who works on grant writing, royalty administration, and artist management, and Brian Heatherman, who has decades of experience at Universal Music Canada, Radio Starmaker Fund, and many other industry associations. Savannah and Brian shared their insights about when an artist should start to build a team around them. I mean, the kind of classic answer to that question is um, you need a manager once there's stuff to manage. <laughs> once once it feels like you're no longer uh, kind of able to handle it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of the general rule. Um, I am a strong um, believer that artists should um, be as empowered and informed as they can um, going into their career. So the more that they know about the industry and um, their rights and just how things work, the more they know, the longer they can kind of go without necessarily needing help. Um, If you step into the industry knowing nothing, um, you could really get either taken advantage of or just really be um, spinning your wheels without getting far. So, um, and then in that case, you know, you might feel like you really need a manager because you just don't know what's going on. But the more you educate yourself, um, I would say the the further you can get before you really need those extra team members. Right. And a lot of the time, those team members um, will start paying attention the further you get without them, if that makes sense. Um, The more of a splash you can kind of make on your own, uh, the chances are greater that you'll start seeing those team members coming to you. And, you know, if you're putting on shows that have really good turnouts in your hometown, that's what'll start getting the, the agent's attention. Or if you start, if you have a few singles on Spotify 
that have started doing really good and have really good streaming numbers, you just might catch the attention of a local label or, or a manager. Right. Um, So I always think that the, the further you can try to go on your own without the team members, the better it is because there's no point sitting around and waiting for somebody else, you know, to, to do it for you. If it's what you want, you should go after it. (laughs) And then, um, and then the team, because the team members are, you can't, you can't force those relationships um, mm-hmm. as much as you might feel like you need them. You kind of have to wait till somebody uh, believes in you and wants to be a part of the team. So I would say keep trucking along until, you know, <laughs> <laughs> until you, either somebody comes to you or you have a fair bit of uh a story to bring to them saying like, I really feel like I need your help because I've got all these things accomplished and, you know, I want to go to the next level. And I, you know, this is where I think you can be of assistance. Yeah. I mean, you know, I do a lot of conferences and things like that, or, you know, panels and things. And often, you know, the question is, well, you know, how do I get a manager or when do I know I need a manager or, you know, I mean, my feeling now, it was it was, would have been different maybe 15 or 20 years ago, but now, you know, generally, if you're doing something right and you're at that level, managers will generally find you. It's not really the other way around necessarily. In fact, in most cases in this business now, whereas people, you know, a manager would find you and then they would shop you to a booking agent and a booking agent would uh, book you and then, you know, then the manager would help you find a label. Mm. Generally, all of these people now find you before, you know, before you need to find them. Managers, I mean, you know, again, I'm sort of, you know, generalizing here, but if you, if you know, if you're not making money, you don't need a manager. Right. You know, because a manager's, you know, pay is based solely on, you know, the commissions they derive from the income that you make. So if you're not making any money, you really can't pay a manager. And, you know, you don't, you know, it's just hard for managers these days too because the business is so different and so harder, to, so much harder to make money. You know, it's very hard for me to take on a client that's not making any money at all because I, then I have to basically work for them for free for a year or two before they start making any any income. So, right. again, as I say, back to the point, which is, you know, it's generally better if, you know, you're doing it, you're creating enough momentum and enough of a story that a manager says, hmm, I can build on that and turn that into something. When an artist is ready to take on team members, a key player to consider is the personal manager. Put simply, the personal manager's job is to build the artist's career and take it from one level to the next. For example, this could include determining which jobs the artist should take and ensuring that the artist's social media reflects what they're trying to present professionally. The role of the manager is broad and difficult to define, as it can take many forms depending on the artist's needs. Having both worked in artist management, Savannah Wellman and Brian Heatherman explained what the role of the personal manager entails, what other team members the manager would coordinate, and what they look for in a new artist. In general, the over, like it's an overview of their entire career, really. Um, And um, which actual roles we take on day to day can actually vary quite a bit depending on the artist. Um, Some artists have different strengths in different areas um, or different team members that are already taking care of certain things. Um, So for example, some of our artists are already really good at social media and they don't really need us to be helping them in that sense. And others are 
a little more lost <laughs> when it comes to things social media. So for them, especially around the time of a release, we might get more hands on and either um, give them like schedules for posting or ideas, or maybe even just take over the posting um, ourselves for a little while when when there's a lot of content to be sharing. Um, similarly with, um, you know, kind of, it tends to be more the administrative side that we, that we, um, take on no matter what. Um, so from collecting royalties, making sure they're signed up for all the proper organizations to make sure they're getting all of the royalties and revenues that they can be getting. Um, another big part of our job, no matter what is finding those other team members. So if they don't already have a booking agent, that'll be one of the first things we start trying to find because booking shows is not something we would like to be doing. <laughs> we, we will do it when it's necessary, but it's such a big job on its own that, um, and there's just so many good agents out there that we would much rather leave it to them to be the professionals. Um, so that's one of the, kind of the first things we look for. Um, if they don't already have an agent, it's finding the right one for them. Somebody that we think will you know, be enthusiastic about the project and has the right connections for them. Um, we would often look for the right publicist if they don't have a publicist already. Um, again, finding somebody that's enthusiastic about the project and um, has a good history with that kind of genre or whatever. Um, they are trying to get like, you know, regional um, coverage and interviews if you're on tour that's kind of something that's really important um, if you're trying to build all those little markets when you're on the road but there are but there are specific publicists these days that do focus just on online outlets and uh, focusing on blogs and playlists and those kinds of things um, so for artists that maybe aren't touring or are just releasing singles um, it can be really useful to go with um, a publicist that is just doing that online feature um, to kind of get the best, I don't know, bang for your buck. <laughs> um, I guess another big piece um, is doing things like negotiations. So um, if the artist is interested in um, looking at record labels um, or any other kind of deal, whether it's a publishing deal or um, the manager is kind of responsible for leading that conversation and potentially those negotiations. There's usually, there's, it's a good idea to have a lawyer involved as well, but um, the manager is kind of there to facilitate those conversations and, uh, and usually do the initial kind of outreach and, um, and uh, you know, gauge the interest um, of the labels that might be wanting to be involved. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, really it's more, you know, it's advising the artist on their career. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, dealing with a label or being the label myself. It's, you know, dealing with agents or venues or, you know, dealing with, and again, you know, not every artist has a publishing deal, not every artist is signed to a record label, but it's literally dealing with all, pretty much every single business decision the artist makes. You, you obviously make it in conjunction with the artist, but sometimes you have to direct the artist to do things that they wouldn't have thought on their own or, or you know, advise them when they, they have ideas that maybe not aren't great ideas. 
direct them to you know the right way to make it the, the way, right way to make it work. And there's going to be a reason why well, there's going to be a reason why a manager or an agent or somebody wants to get involved. There's going to be a story. Mm-hmm. It could be maybe maybe you're not selling any records or you know maybe you have limited social media but uh, or li- limited social media engagement. But you know every time you play a city, you play to you know 150 people and they go crazy. That's right. a good reason. Right. Those okay. kind of things. Yeah, it definitely goes both ways. Sometimes people approach us and sometimes um, we go after artists that we're interested in. Um, At the very beginning of the company, both um, my partner Megan and I agreed that the love of the music has to come first. We have to really believe in the project and the music they're making because that's the whole point of all of this. Um, And then beyond that, um, we like to get to know an artist in some capacity before before signing them on uh, with a management agreement, because it is a pretty in-depth relationship. We kind of compare it to dating. (laughs) You don't ask somebody to marry you on the first date. Um, So we like to get to know an artist. And so whether that's working with them on something like grant writing first, just to kind of get used to working together and feeling things out, or maybe, you know, we just kind of keep in touch with them for a while as they're, as they're, um, career progresses um, because we, we think that, you know, there needs to be kind of a mutual um, um, we need to see eye to eye about a lot of things um, from like their goals to their like outlook on the industry. And it's always good to like get a feel for somebody's work ethic. Um, and, and all of that really does come into play when you're, when you're managing somebody's career. So those are some of the things that we kind of like to to feel out. But yeah, it does usually always come back to kind of the love of the music that they're making. And, you know, we need to be their biggest cheerleaders. Um, and so we want that to be authentic. When an artist is ready to take on team members, a key player to consider is the label. Record labels can encompass many other players as well, such as managers, promoters, etc., as most established labels will generally have marketing teams, press teams, radio pluggers, and accounts departments. Essentially, the infrastructure to support the various components of the artist business. In the past few decades, there has been debate about the role of labels in the music industry, given their contentious history of having disproportionate control over the artist's career and ownership over their work. Today, labels are widely varied in the services they provide and the proportion of royalties that they claim a shift that has occurred alongside the growing prominence of independent labels, which usually give artists greater control and ownership over their work. There's now even a certain amount of prestige to the term independent, as high-profile artists have voiced their support, such as Chance the Rapper, who won a Grammy for his album Coloring Book, as an independent artist. Now, I think it's important to discuss the term independent, because there's no clear definition. Some artists view it as funding their projects out of their own pocket, without the investment of a label. Others view it more broadly, simply as not being signed to any of the three major labels, which are Sony, Warner, and Universal. From what I can gather, the term independent can be somewhat misleading, and perhaps isn't particularly useful in thinking about the artist's team. Artists who are considered independent are usually backed by a team covering the key business components that a label would also handle. Given that there's more and more to manage as an artist grows, it's unlikely that any one person would be able to handle all of the business components alongside creating music. Because of this, I think it's more relevant to think about the artist's team as an entity that can be formed either through signing with a label or through other types of deals with distributors, promoters, booking agents, etc. 
Basically, as an artist, you should be aware of these different parts of building your business so you can negotiate the best deal for you, whether you go with a label or another type of service provider. Along with Savannah Wellman, I spoke with Jonathan Simkin from 604 Records in Vancouver about how labels have shifted in recent years and how indie labels compare with majors. I think independent labels are doing a lot better things these days than major mm. labels are and have, have much more power than they did when I first started, you know? When I first started, if you were on an indie, it was almost like, um, not shameful, but it wasn't, it was because it was the consolation prize. Mm. You know, you couldn't get a deal with a major, so you ended up on an indie. Whereas now, it's almost the reverse, you know? Like, I don't know a lot of people who sign major label deals these days that are happy about it, unless they're already an established artist. And it's funny, I, I heard, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to Howard Stern, but I was listening to Howard Stern on uh, on Wednesday, and he was um, in L.A. this week, and he had Green Day on. And they oh, got yeah. into a really, really interesting conversation about this, about Howard saying, well, why the fuck do you even have a label now? Like, why do you even... And, you know, uh, Billy Joe Armstrong was just like, well, because we have leverage now, and now right. we can get yeah. out of a deal what we really want. And he said, you know, to be honest, we like that. I don't want to have to be the label. I don't want to have right. to do all that work. Like, totally. I'd rather have somebody else doing it as long as it's on, as, as it's on terms that we can stomach. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, because of our stature now, we can get a good deal. You know, I, I, it's very easy to just go, oh, nobody needs a label anymore. But I, I think that's an oversimplification. I, yeah. just think there's, I just think there's more options now. And, totally. and sometimes it may make sense to not do a deal with a major. And sometimes it makes more sense to do it yourself. Yeah, it is. It is kind of the big question. Um, and there's no like one answer right now either, because there's so many different routes to success. Um, but I think that following that idea of being as like informed and educated as you can be um, will help kind of direct those decisions you know like you'll the more you know the more informed you can be about going into a deal and knowing if it actually has something to offer you or not because you don't want to just be signing over your rights to somebody just because they're interested and just because they say they can do something for you um, doing your research to find out the history and the results of, of that um, company and really looking at what you're going to get out of this scenario is, is just so important because I think that you can do a lot as an independent artist. I don't think that anybody needs those things necessarily, but um, you very well might come to a point where you feel like you've kind of done all you can on your own and the addition of that team member or that label um, would just get you to the next level. And I don't think that that's something to be um, like afraid of or to shy away from, but I think you need to make sure that the, that it's really working in your favor and that you're not getting taken advantage of. Whether you're an indie artist considering a distribution deal or an artist negotiating a record deal with a label, negotiating and signing any contract brings another team player into the picture, the entertainment lawyer. Legal documents can be hard to understand, so getting a lawyer to look over any agreement you're considering is very important. I spoke with Byron Pasco from Edwards Creative Law about his role as a music lawyer. So I, I would say that um, how I describe what I do with musicians is that I help them to review agreements that they're asked to sign 
and help them to prepare agreements that, that they want other people to sign. So it's very transactional. It's very uh, agreement focused with respect to the different players in the ecosystem, the writer, the performer, the label, the publisher, the you know, session musicians, um, whoever else I'm missing from that list, um, but all the different people and how they interact with each other and how they document or don't document their relationships with each other. Um, in terms of you know, client work, um, there, are, there are and have been a variety of people that I've you know, helped with with one contract. And I haven't heard from them since because that may be the only contract they've ever been asked to sign, you know, that warranted having, you know, some legal advice on it. There are other clients that I have that I do work for every week or every month for years because they're just a variety of things that they you know, need help with. Um, so it varies. And in terms of genre, it varies from, you know, folk to hip hop, folk, uh, rock to, you know, um, metal and everything in between in a variety of languages. Uh, involving partners, you know, in their own backyard or in their own province or across Canada or elsewhere in the world. There is no single type of record deal. And with a rapidly changing industry, it's hard to say what a typical recording agreement might look like. But there are some key things to be aware of when you're presented with an offer, including the term of the contract and the number of albums required. I spoke with Byron Pasco, Jonathan Simkin, and Jeff Fulpert, a recording engineer and producer at Desert Fish Studios and educator at the University of Toronto, about the key things to look out for in recording agreements. So the, the, the term of a record label agreement is usually somewhat contentious. Um, the, the term of, a, of an exclusive recording agreement means that this is the number of months or years um, that you need to, that you can't record that you need to record with them and nobody else. Um, you know, you can you put out albums with this label, but you also aren't allowed to do anything else with anybody else. You're not, you're not allowed to put out music with other, um, you know, labels or on your own in, in the meantime. Um, so, you know, an, an exclusive recording agreement limits you not only with this with respect to the specific album and maybe you know the next two or three or four albums, but also with respect to anything you might want to do in between. Um, I was looking at an agreement last night for a label um, whereby it was uh, an initial term and then three additional terms. So we're talking about uh, a four album deal and it just didn't make sense in the circumstances with you know who the record label was. Uh, in other situations, it's reasonable to give a long-term commitment to a label, but in you know it, it really depends on who the artist is, who the label is. Um, you know, what they're willing to do, what they've done with other people, what kind of advances they're willing to make, what kind of marketing spend they're willing to make, what kind of recording budget they're willing to make. Um, you know, if, if they're in Canada, then how, you know, what their expectations are about grant funding. Um, you know, if, if, if they're in the United States, that's, that's less of a discussion so long as, you know, if you're giving all your rights to an American label for the world, um, you know, you are not in the same situation as compared to if you have Canadian rights and are seeking, you know, grant funding in Canada from a Canadian label or through a Canadian label. So um, all that to say, um, with respect to the term, it's important to figure out, you know, what makes sense for you in your, in your situation and your label. Uh, and just because a label wants to have the ability to 
um, put out your next four albums doesn't mean that that's a reasonable request. So, um, you know, relating to that, a comment I'd have about both recording and publishing deals is that you don't have to actually enter into the agreement if you don't want to. If you get an offer from a publisher or a label, you know, you're not, you're, you're not required to you know, even consider it if you don't want to. But even if you've discussed it with them and you know, had meetings or even hired a lawyer to help you review a contract, you're not obligated you know, to actually go through with it if you don't want to go through with it. Um, some general, what I call you know, red flags, whether it's a recording or label or, or recording or publishing agreement or otherwise, um, some of the, kind of the, the key red flags, I'd say, would be inconsistencies between what you're told and what's actually in, in the agreement. So, you know, maybe told one thing, just because you're told one thing doesn't mean that the agreement that you're asked to sign is consistent with what you're being told. Oftentimes it's not, usually it's not. So, you know, not with respect to everything, but usually it's not entirely consistent with what you may have been told or what you may have understood. Um, that's why it's helpful to have people uh, look at the agreement with you and you know, talk you through it and ask you what your expectations are and then talk about if those expectations are consistent with the agreement or not. Um, when we're talking about a revenue formula, that's a profit split between the label or the publisher and, and the artist. You want to make sure that you're looking to see, you know, to what extent they can expense things um, because you don't want to be in a situation where no matter how much money is generated, they have, they've paid for something that's being you know, covered by that revenue. You want to make sure there's some kind of limitation or cap or approval on on costs that at some you know with respect to some kind of formula that makes sense for the parties involved. Record deals come in so many varieties, especially now in the new world. Like when I first started, it was all about major labels. The deals all kind of looked the same. They were really one-sided and crappy for the artists. Um, they were long. You know, you could end up doing a seven-record deal or an eight-record deal. And it's funny because I remember at the time, sometimes bands would sign these deals that were long, and they'd be, like, excited. Oh, man, we just signed an eight-record deal. Like, that's wow. a good thing. Not yeah. realizing that you're a slave now, and you're stuck <laughs> in this deal for probably your entire career. Um, so that's certainly... Uh, one of the aspects of a deal that gets hotly negotiated, the term. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't know if there's an average anymore. It's certainly a lot less than it used to be because artists kind of wised up and um, we're like, no fucking way am I signing a, you know, a deal that's, you know, you know, to six records or seven records. Yeah. Um, and, but it's also the same on pretty much every aspect now of a record deal. Like for example, um, it's the same thing on, um, like, um, the royalties. Like, um, uh, major labels still tend to account on the, on the retail basis. So, um, you know, you get a royalty that's based on the retail price of a record, and, um, and that's kind of how that works. Um, mm -hmm. But, like, 604, for example, does uh, profit split deals. You know, all the money that we spend goes on the negative side. Okay. All the money that we earn goes on the positive side. And if mm -hmm. any accounting period, there's um, more money received than spent, the profit gets split evenly with the band. 
I like that model for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. The, tr- the truth is, when we started the label all those years ago, the reason I did it is um, I've always been good at making money, but I'm not a good, I'm not, I don't have a brain for numbers. Mm-hmm. And I, I major label like recording contracts in terms of the royalty sections are just insane. Like, you know, I remember doing a deal. Well, I think like, uh, oh, sorry, it's my car. I think my, um, <laughs> the deal that we did with Carly Rae Jepsen with mm-hmm. Interscope, like the royalty section is like 40 pages long. Wow. Um, so complicated, so <laughs> hard to understand. And I, I didn't want that. I didn't want that for my label. I wanted to make sure, number one, that I understood how it worked. Number mm-hmm. two, that I could explain how it worked to an artist. And number three, that an artist could read the contract and more or less have a pretty clear grip on how it worked. Um, right. That really was important to me. And um, and so that's why we ended up with that model. And I'm so glad we did now. I mean, a lot more labels are doing it. It's so much simpler. Um, mm. It's so much easier from an accounting perspective. Um, but, you know, the point I guess I'm trying to make is that contracts when I first started in the business 20-whatever years ago all kind of looked the same. Now it's all over the place. I mean, there's those companies like Monster Cat, those sort of digital companies who I think only ever do one song at a time. Like they only ever right. do deals one song at a time. Like there's so much variety now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, major labels don't control everything like they used to. So uh, people aren't as inclined to give it all up to a major like they used to. Mm-hmm. You know, but right, true. there's lots of issues that are important in a record deal term. Um you know, how much money they're going to give you for recording, uh, whether you're going to get any advances, what mechanical royalty rate you're going to get, um, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're going to commit to tour support, whether they're going to commit to making videos, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's like a million issues that go into most recording agreements um, that are all important. The difference between a good deal and a bad deal is often just, the cumulative effect of um, there might be a deal where, you know, hey, yeah, we had to give up a lot of rights and a lot of records, but they paid us a giant, you know, amount of money up front. Like, right. And that also depends on the priority of the band, because some bands are all about, like, how much money you're paying us up front, and some bands are more concerned about the back end, you know. Um, so it's hard to really encapsulate like, here's what matters in a record deal, because so much matters in a record deal. There's yeah. so many different issues and so much variation. The thing is, if you take somebody's money to make a record, don't be surprised that they own it. Yeah. Right? I think that's really the, the thing is that I think record companies got a bad reputation. Uh, um because they, they start to be looked at uh, somebody who would take all the money from you know these horror stories of this artist, made this record for something, and they were destitute because they owed the record company so much money. Yes, there can be abuse. But unless there's fraud involved, they did take the money up front. Do you know what I mean? And that's where I think people sort of don't look at both sides of the story. Yeah. If you're going to take, well, it's not going to happen much anymore, but... Um, but because of the change in the business, but or the change in income, but the uh, but if at some point somebody offers you a great deal of money, you take it and you blow it on whatever you want to blow it, 
and then the record sells a bazillion copies, yes, you will owe them. You know, and you won't start to get paid as the artist until you paid them back. So um, I, I think that's a situation to go into with your eyes wide open. If you don't have resource and there is a record company willing to pay to make your record, well, the, bonif the benefit is there you get to make the record. And if you're going to make a record, remember, it's, it's, the record you're making is important. The record you make after it is equally as important. So you need to have a way to continue your career one way or another, and it could be totally useful to you. So things to look out for would be how many records are in the contract, right? How much you're being advanced and what it's for. So you want to make sure they're not running up expenses with things that may not be beneficial. So in other words, if people are charging you, you know, for phone calls and photocopying and consultations with lawyers that you didn't really know is going on and stuff like that and travel and the travel's all first business class and people are going, yeah, that pads the budget in a big way against, against income. Now that's pretty old school for something like that to happen because there has to be enough money around for that to happen in the first place. That's not generally how it's made. But yes, that's what people have to look out for. On the other hand, they probably took the money themselves and bought themselves a car or something. Do you know what I mean? So then wh why are you surprised? Do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the record company can't make money off of you paying them back exactly what you owe them. That's not yeah. commerce. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They have to make a profit, right? So that, that sort of thing. So yeah, so buyer beware when you take the money, basically. Right. Um, but many record deals now are on self-financed mm -hmm. records where the artist is basically, it's a master lease deal. The artist is paid to make the record. And you may be doing a P&D deal, production and distribution deal, something PPD, production promotion and distribution. Often promotion is not part of the deal any longer, and it's up to the artist. They'll say, hey, you take care of it. You have, you know, yeah. you're, you're social media savvy, aren't you? Do you know what I mean? And that, that seems to cover everything. And um, so if the record company is you know, paying for the production, which is the manufacturing of the actual physical product, the question is, is there a physical product, right? Or is it simply downloadable? And then the distribution of it, well, when it's physical product, the cost of distribution is higher than when it's digital distribution, right. and so on and so forth. So you can see why people say, hey, I can do that myself. If all I have is a file and I need to get it online, great. So I think promotion is where most of the business needs to be right. um, uh, for, that's beneficial to the artist. So making a deal for promotion would pay because you'd look, uh, you know, a decent promoter for a single on an indie record is going to cost you 5K. Yeah. Like really, that's what it's going to be. Right. So do you have it? If you don't, maybe somebody else will pay right. for it, in which case you make a deal with them, yeah. you know, and, and that sort of stuff. So it's just a, it's not that tricky anymore. As the music industry has evolved alongside capitalist consumerism, an artist's brand has always been an important part of making money. But branding has taken on a new meaning in recent years. Artists are now able to earn money through non-music-related revenue streams, such as merchandise and brand partnerships. And many major artists are now being sponsored by brands to endorse non-music products, such as clothing, cell phones, and even vodka. You can see these partnerships all over social media, such as Lady Gaga's partnership with Tiffany & Co. and 50 Cent's partnership with F & Vodka. These partnerships are a key component of 360 deals which give the label greater control over not only music-related aspects of an artist's career, but also merchandise, endorsements, appearances in movies, etc. 360 deals have been a topic of debate, as the deals have been seen to give the label an unfair opportunity to capitalize on more and more streams of the artist's income. As you're considering record deals and building a team as an artist, I think these deals are important to be aware of. 
I spoke with Byron Pascoe, Brian Heatherman, and Jonathan Simkin to learn more about 360 deals. So a 360 deal essentially means that the the company has rights relating or entitlements relating to everything, if not almost everything that you do as a musician. So, you know, money from touring, money from sponsorships, money from endorsements, money money from recording, from royalties, uh, kind of everything, everything that you do. Um, And I mean, a 360 deal is reasonable so long as as it's reasonable. Uh, And it's not reasonable if it's not reasonable. So, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with the concept generally, but the way that it's set up may be totally inappropriate. So, I mean, I've, I've essentially prepared 360 deals for, you know, kind of small label clients of mine and the situation, you know, it's reasonable because the the person who's investing in the artist is investing a ton of time and money. Um, And, you know, if the timeline isn't too ridiculous, then it's sometimes reasonable. And I've, you know, worked with artists who get these, these deals that are all encompassing and sometimes they're appropriate and sometimes they're not. Um, it really depends on the specific circumstances, but to answer the question, it's a 360 deal covers the 360 degrees of a musician's, you know, revenue sources. That would be one way to, to describe it. And, you know, concurrent with their obligations, so, uh, concurrent with their entitlements to money should be obligations to do stuff. So if they're your, if they're getting money from endorsements, they should be at least trying to seek endorsements. If they are getting money from touring, they should be trying to set up tour dates or trying to get you, you know, in with a booking agency. So, you know, if someone's taking money from some specific source of your revenue, then they should concurrently be obligated or concurrently be confirming that they will in good faith seek to generate income from that source. You don't want to give someone only entitlements and zero obligations. It it's happens all the time. That doesn't mean that it's reasonable. You know, I run a management company and a label, so a 360 deal makes a lot of sense for me as a business person. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, again, there's obviously caveats to that kind of arrangement. You know, in my situation, I don't double dip. In other words, if you're assigned to my label, I don't commission record sales. So you're okay. actually an artist that's saving money there. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do a publishing deal with me, I don't commission publishing because you're already. So if you're in a good situation with a 360 deal where you know your manager, label, and publisher is all the same person, as long as you're not cross collateralizing or double dipping in any of those areas for commissions, you're mm-hmm. actually going to save money. You're going to make more money because you're not paying out all these entities for their share of it, and then on top of that your manager is commissioning or things, you know what I mean? So it can be a very advantageous scenario, but of course it can only be advantageous if the, you know, if the, if you're not getting, you know, hit more than once on a fee and, and, you know, the deal's fair. You know, in my mind, you know, if you're, if you're doing a 360 deal, it should really be with a manager first. I mean, the manager should be the main person and you should have the ability to get out of your record deals if better record deals come along. Where it's contentious it is, if you do a 360 deal with a record label who's not really a management company or a publisher and they, you know, they're taking those fees, but they're, but you're not really getting anything for the, for the, for the fee. You know, if your record label is not really your manager and you have a manager, 
then they shouldn't really be taking a percentage of merch sales or things of that nature, right? Yeah. Like, they should only be, basically, people should only be participating in, in the areas where they actually bring knowledge and strength. I can't even imagine being an entertainment lawyer. Like, I am still a lawyer. I'm still Nickelback's lawyer. And, yeah. um, I rep- and I'm still Stint's lawyer, the producer Stint. But um, I could never do what I was doing before. And, and the reason is, um, the deals now are horrible. There are these horrible yeah. 360 deals. As soon as those deals started to become the norm, I was kind of done because you know what? Like, uh, record deals were always bad for, especially for for, for like new artists. Right. Now, if you're Nickelback, if you're Nickelback now, you get a good record deal because yeah, you have you have the leverage. But um, you know, y- y- it was very much you know when you're a brand new band, um, at a certain level, all one label could offer you more than another label was um more money but the deals were all kind of the same they're all kind of crappy but once the 360 deals started to happen i just couldn't stomach it like you know what i love making money in the music business but i love sleeping at night too i just couldn't stomach it i couldn't stomach doing 360 deals knowing that in five years or six years that artist was going to come to me and say how could you have let me sign that shitty deal because in the old days, it's like, hey, the chances of us actually making any royalties are almost zero because of the way these deals are structured. But at least we own our publishing. At least mm. we own our merchandise. At least we do well when we play live. And so the record side was almost like a lost leader. You, right. It was okay that you weren't making the money there because there were a million other ways that you could make the money. Um, okay. So, um, you know, 360 deals, it's like the labels take often large percentages of all those revenue streams, but they don't really do anything to give it back or to contribute to those revenue streams. And, and so like the issue I have with it is um, like, I got the rationale at the time because the rationale was pretty simple. It's like, Hey, people don't buy records anymore. It's not fair that we spend all this money on you making records and promoting them. And then you go off and make all this money. It's not fair. So we want pieces of that, but where I get, and okay, I guess fair enough, but very, pretty soon that just became really a greedy, kind of shitty, kind of money yeah. grab. Yeah. And you know the thing is, it's like okay, I get that rationale, I guess, but now the business is healthy again with streaming. So why are you still doing them? Right. Everybody seems to forget that original rationale. Okay. Now I should say there are a few exceptions. Uh, one of the exceptions is, say, Nickelback, who, um, you know, I, I negotiated a very famous 360 deal for them with Live Nation. Mm. Um, Live Nation did a series of these deals. And, um, you know, who did they do them with? Madonna, U2, mm-hmm. Nickelback, uh, Jay-Z. Like, it was just the biggest of the biggest artists who right. got those deals. Um, you know, um but for the most part, those 360 deals were being done with, um, you know, with bands and uh, um, who are brand new bands. And really, I mean, can you imagine, like, you go off on your first tour and maybe you're lucky enough to come home with $1,000 and then you got to cut a check to your label for 300 bucks? Like, again, I wanted nothing to do with it. 
Overall, building a team is something to consider when you feel like you need help developing, distributing, and promoting your music. A lot of this process is about being aware and proactive in negotiating clear agreements with various team players so that your relationship is beneficial to your career as an artist. To close, here's some advice from Savannah Wellman on not getting lost in the business side and Jonathan Simkin on being careful when considering deals. You can get really lost in the promotional side and the, the online and the numbers. And at the end of the day, what it's all about is making music that you love, that you want to share with other people and that connection and that authentic person-to-person connection um, is really what's going to build you a career and a following and um, not losing sight of that and, and not getting lost in the sea of streams and numbers and, you know, all of these metrics that we have that are supposed to give an artist value. At the end of the day, I think the true value is in your connection with people. So always work on building that first. Um, thing about the music business is, you know, it's a business based on dreams, on people's mm-hmm. dreams. <laughs> and that means people are more vulnerable to get uh, fucked over yeah. <clears throat> because you want it so badly. And it's like, even if something doesn't make sense, maybe you, your brain only lets you hear the stuff that does make sense. And mm-hmm. you go ahead and end up doing some horrible deal with a horrible person just because, I don't know, they said the right thing. They're going to make you a star. They're going to make you huge. Like, those are always the worst reasons to get a, to do a deal with anybody. It's it's like anything else in life. You yeah. know, um, it's got to feel right. Like, you, you can't just, uh, you can't force that stuff. But there's a little part of you that's in the back of your mind going, gee, I don't know about this. Yeah. Listen to that part of your brain. Um, yeah. Um, but, you know, um, again, I, I, I'm a big fan of, like, you know, The more you can do it yourself, the better. Thank you so much to Brian Heatherman, Byron Pascoe, Jonathan Simkin, Savannah Wellman, and Jeff Wolpert for their contributions to this episode. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Off Key. I've linked to the show notes for this episode in the description, so check those out for a summary of key points, links, and resources on the topics we discussed during this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. They really help us to improve and create the best content possible for our listeners. If you have any topics that you would like me to cover, please email me at offkey@membran.net or send me a message at either Membran Labs or Talia SW on Instagram. This episode of Offkey is written and produced by me, Talia Seidman-Wright, with writing and research assistance from Dino Chilotti. Thank you to Torben Witterman for creating the music used in our intro, outro, and transitions. Offkey is a member of Membrane Entertainment Canada, aka Membrane Labs, a music services company that provides distribution and label services for Canadian artists and labels. We're also exploring ways, like with this podcast, to help all musical artists be better informed, know their rights, and ensure they get all of the money that is rightfully owed to them 